And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Formed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. To Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Would you like to be seated as Richard comes to speak? Right, let's pray. Lord, please help me to speak, and please help us all to appreciate what you've done for us, to glorify you, and to rejoice in you. Amen. As I'm sure an awful lot of you are aware, that passage that we've all just said together uh, is traditionally called the Magnificat. It's called that after the first word in the Latin translation. And it's included in the Anglican prayer book, Evening Prayer Service. The result of which was that for 400 years, all Anglican congregations up and down the land said or sang it every Sunday evening. Now, for the last 50 years, uh, it's been used less and is therefore now less familiar. And that, I think, is a pity, because it's a great song, it's memorable, you can easily memorise it, and it can be used by all of us for both public and private prayer and reflection. And that alone is a good enough reason for using it today, However, we do have two more specific reasons. The first is pretty obvious. It's the run-up to Christmas. And this song, we are told, was said by Mary when she was pregnant with Jesus. The second reason for using it is a little less obvious, but nonetheless important. Uh, Mary's song has great similarities with Hannah's song, which appears in 1 Samuel chapter Two. And the themes that Mary speaks of are very similar to those themes that we've been looking at in our series on 1 Samuel for the last uh, three months. You see, Hannah's song was realised in the events of 1 Samuel. And as we've uh, observed, those events look beyond themselves to a greater realisation of Hannah's song in the future. And Mary's song picks up on those themes as that greater realisation was beginning. That's why it's appropriate that we should look at it ourselves now. I think a lot of people imagine that what happened was that Mary came out with this song, as it were, suddenly in an inspired utterance. 
And, and that might have been what happened. But we should just note the Bible doesn't say that, and there are various other possibilities. It, it's possible she reflected on what had happened to her and what she was told was going to happen to her for a number of weeks or even months and composed this over a period. Who, who knows? Zechariah the priest might have helped her with it. She was, after all, staying in his house at the time. Zechariah served in the temple. He may even have given her something like this uh, on the basis that it was known to him because it was used in the temple. Now, actually, none of that really matters. What matters is the content. What matters is that Mary either composed this or adopted it as her own because it perfectly fits her circumstances. So what we're going to do is we're going to look, first of all, about what we can learn from Mary's demeanour and her attitude, and then look about, uh, at what Mary says about God's nature and character and also uh, his, um, uh, his actions. Uh, so let's look, first of all, at her. Now, I do appreciate that the Catholic Church has overemphasized the importance of Mary over the years. But we need to be careful that we don't overreact to that overemphasis and ignore Mary. Because if we do so, that will be to our detriment, because I think we can learn a lot from her, and I hope to demonstrate that over the next few minutes. Let's start by noting her humility. I, I, I don't know about you, but when somebody asks me to do something important, I have to watch out that I don't get puffed up. Oh, yes, of course, they've asked me because I'm, I'm just good. <laughs> it's easy, really. Um, that's why. You may not suffer from that temptation, but I suspect all of us from time to time are just tempted to put ourselves on a pedestal vis-a-vis other people, to, to view ourselves as just that little bit better than other people. And we need to resist that temptation. We need to try to see ourselves and other people from God's perspective and to repent of our own arrogance. And I'd suggest that in doing that, we can really benefit from looking at Mary. Just think about her for a moment. She had been chosen to give birth to God's son, Jesus. Wow. I mean, just think about it. What better reason for being puffed up than that? Chosen by God. So, so, so what, what does she say? Uh, God has noted how good and suitable I am for this task. No, she doesn't, does she? She says, look at verse 48, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. I'm simply God's humble servant, she said, as of course we all are. And does she say, from now on all generations will call me great? Of course she doesn't. Second half of verse 48. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. From now on, people won't say, look how good Mary was. They'll say, look how good God was in blessing Mary. 
she turned the attention on God. And you see, she recognized that she, like everyone else, needs, needed God's grace, his undeserved favor. I wonder if you noticed that in verse 47. Take a look at verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God my saviour. She knew that she needed a saviour and she recognised that what was happening to her showed that she had one. We need to have the same attitude, don't we? We need to look at Mary, reflect on her humility and seek to imitate it. That's point one. Point two. Mary recognised what God was doing for her and she glorified God as a result and rejoiced in it. Go on to verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me, she said. Now you might think, well well, yes, uh, she was going to have a baby, but But that on its own wasn't what she was rejoicing in. To understand that, you have to go back to what the angel said to her. If you've got your Bibles open, take a look back at the top of page 1026, verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. Mary was to give birth to and to nurture God's Messiah. God had given her meaning in her life. He'd given her a purpose, a great task to perform as to use Mary's own words, his humble servant. And she glorified God in that. Verse 46, my soul glorifies the Lord. Uh, The word translated glorified there, incidentally, literally means enlarges. Hence the traditional translation magnifies. It's rather expressive. And that, of course, in turn comes from magnificat, the Latin. My soul so appreciates what God has done that he is huge in my, in my contemplation, is what she's saying. And the result, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour. Rejoices again is a very strong word. Exalts is what it means. I so appreciate the greatness of God and what he's done that I exalt in that. It, it fills my thinking, is what she's saying. I hope the application to us is is pretty obvious. Because the Bible tells us God has done mighty things for us as well. And we'll be looking at them over coming coming weeks. Like Mary, God has provided us with a saviour. Like Mary, he's given us purpose in our lives as his servants. That gives us meaning in our lives And we should recognise that. We should glorify God in contemplating that. And we should rejoice in it. It's worthy of rejoicing. Point two. (coughs) Point three. Mary 
didn't merely recognise what God was doing in her life, she related it to the big picture. She related it to what God was doing for people as a whole. If you recall, that's exactly what Hannah had done 1,100 years earlier. Do you remember? Hannah started by thinking about what God had done in enabling her to conceive and have a child. And very quickly in her song, she moved on. And she concludes her song observing that God would do exactly the same thing for his king to come. Effectively, what she had seen in her life was merely an example of what God was doing for all his people. And Mary does exactly the same thing. Here, go back to verse 48. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He's been mindful of me. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel. He's been mindful of all of his people. Furthermore, as you may have noted, this song is full of Old Testament words and Old Testament imagery. In fact, there are probably a dozen or even more uh, near quotations of uh, uh, or allusions to Old Testament passages here. There are allusions to the Psalms, to Micah, Habakkuk, uh, Zephaniah, all sorts. You see, Mary had utterly absorbed the word of God. Her whole view, uh, her whole world view was based on the word of God. Now again, I hope the application of that is pretty obvious to us. We need to make sure that we don't view our lives in a little bubble as isolated modern individuals. We need to see what's happening to us uh, exemplifies uh, and, and how it relates to that big picture. And we also need to make sure that we so absorb the word of God that it infuses our entire thinking that it informs our entire world view. I can imagine a few of you thinking, mm, yeah, it was, it was easy for Mary. She had angels with her and she had the Holy Spirit to inspire this utterance. That's why it's in the Bible. All true, but irrelevant. Because you see, we've got the Bible. Mary, incidentally, wouldn't have been able to have this Bible in front of her like we have now. She listened to it. And would have memorised large chunks of it. And we have the Holy Spirit as well. We are able to have our thinking totally absorbed and totally dominated by the word of God. Such that our worldview is dominated by it. Do not be conformed to uh, this world, said Paul. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what had happened to Mary. We observe it in this song and and we should model ourselves on her. So that's what we can observe in Mary. What about what Mary said? Uh, What did she say about the nature and character of God? Well, I'm going to do this more quickly for a very simple reason, that this jolly well ought to be revision for us because all that she says is in Hannah's song 
And we've been looking at it in its working out in practice over the last three months when we've been studying 1 Samuel. But nonetheless, quickly, let's just remind herself, uh, ourselves. Uh, uh, she says three things, fundamentally. Number one, God is powerful. She calls him the mighty one in verse 49. And then in verse 51, he has performed mighty deeds uh, with his arm. The Bible tells us time and again, God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. We must never forget that in our contemplation of God. Then number two, end of verse 49, God is holy. Holy is his name. God is utterly other. He's not like us. He's utterly other. He's separate from his creation. He is pure and perfect. That, that's the basis of our worship of him. And again, we must never forget it. We must never bring God down to our level in our minds. But then third, God is merciful. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And then again in verse 4, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Uh, In modern English, the word mercy is more often than not used in a passive sense. We're merciful by not doing something, uh, by, by not inflicting punishment when punishment could be justified, by, by, by not doing something to somebody that we could justifiably do. And that passive sense is, of course, true of many uses of the word merciful in the Bible. God does not give us uh, our just deserts. But the Bible, more often than not, has something far more active in mind when it uses the word mercy, as in the phrase acts of mercy. Interestingly, verse 50 is in fact a paraphrase of Psalm 103, verse 17. And I'll just read the original from from the Psalms. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. So you note there, the word is the Lord's love. Actually, the underlying Hebrew is one of my favourite Hebrew concepts, which I've mentioned so many times you'll probably be a bit bored uh, with it. I've heard you say it. It's hesed. It is God's steadfast, merciful love. And it is mentioned literally hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it's an active thing, an active reaching out in love, helping us. It includes, of course, forgiveness. That is what Mary has in mind when she speaks of mercy here. That's what she's rejoicing in. God's steadfast, merciful love. So, she says that God is powerful. She reminds us that he's holy. She reminds us that he's merciful. And what specific actions does she have in mind? Well, she says quite a lot about that. That's verses 51 through 55. I haven't got time to go through them all now. 
Let's just look at verses 54 and 55 because they are the, the, the most important thing to understand the whole of what she says. He's remembered his servant, sorry, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Uh, By the way, uh, there's some uncertainty as to whether the phrase to Abraham and his descendants forever attaches to the words remembering to be merciful or attaches to the words just as he promised to our ancestors. That's why some of you who know the older translations will think, hang on, it says something slightly different in those older translations. But the reality is that that doesn't matter terribly much because the key thing that Mary is saying is perfectly clear. She's saying that God made promises to the ancestors of the Jews of her day. She's saying that those promises included promises of blessing and salvation and that God is now fulfilling those promises. You see, Mary didn't just listen to the angel, she believed him. Let's just go go back. The Lord will give him, that's Jesus, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. God had promised a Messiah to bring salvation to his people. And Mary was saying she accepted that her son would be that Messiah. Now, I doubt that Mary really had much conception of what was going to happen next. How could she? And we read later in the Gospels that she got confused on occasions. But I do suspect she glimpsed some things, albeit very faintly. She knew her Old Testament and she might well have reflected on the fact that God had promised Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. She might even have thought about what Isaiah said, that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. And all of that sort of hinted in the verse 50 where she says his mercy extends to all those who fear him. Not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but he is a saviour to the whole world. I know people sometimes struggle with that idea of fearing God. We sometimes hear it explained as uh, uh, it's the idea of awe of God. And that is helpful to a point. But, But there are two difficulties with simply explaining the fear of God as awe. First of all, it doesn't tell us why we have that awe. We can talk about having awe of something inanimate. We can look at mountains and say we're in awe of the mountains. And and we can have an emotional response or an emotional um, reaction of awe in very different circumstances from those we're being called upon to have it with God. Furthermore... What the Bible means by the fear of God is not merely having uh, an emotional reaction, a feeling. It's a response to God. And in order to understand that, it's worth thinking about what Mary has said because it gives us a very good picture of someone 
who fears God. You see, someone who fears God uh, will likely recognize the power of God, the holiness of God, and the mercy of God. And they will be in awe, yes, of that, but they will also respond by bowing down and worshipping. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about having the fear of God. If we fear God, if you and I fear God, we will recognise that he is all-powerful, that he's absolutely other, completely separate from his creation, pure and perfect. We'll recognise that he holds the power of life and death over us. And that we are all guilty before him. We will recognise, in other words, that we need a saviour. But we will also recognise, as Mary did, that God is merciful. God exhibits steadfast love and he's promised a saviour and has fulfilled that promise. And if we fear God, then we will, in humility and faith, accept that saviour, accept accept that salvation. And of course, that's what Mary did. And that brings us right back to thinking about Mary herself. She exemplified that fear of God, which she indirectly commends to us. As I say, we can learn a lot from her. Amen.